0: you take your copies of God's Word and open with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, what by most accounts is a high watermark in biblical history, if not indeed human history. When an 80-year-old shepherd by the name of Moses encounters God in a barren place, in a bush that burns with fire but is not consumed. Moses encountered God uh, certainly in a more visible way than you and I encounter him this morning. But we do not encounter him in a way less real because we have the word of the living God which lives and abides forever. So would you join with me or follow with me as we read beginning in Exodus chapter 3 verse 1 through verse 6. And then we'll skip over to verse 14. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to my people Israel, I am Has sent me to you. July the 22nd of this year, the largest, longest total eclipse of the 21st century, uh, at any point in time in the 21st century, took place in Southeast Asia, totally eclipsing the sun for over six minutes. Six minutes and 39 seconds. The moon was so close to the earth that it covered as a black disk, obscuring the light of the sun for all of those in that Pacific Rim area. Now the sun didn't change. It was still caressing the earth in other places. It was still bathing the face of an infant in a crib in the western hemisphere. It was still fall its rays still falling on on uh, plants and vegetation and causing the chlorophyll processes to take place. In other places of the world it was still lifting Millions of millions of gallons of water to the heavens in this cycle of condensation, evaporation, and rain. But if you were standing in that place, you wouldn't be able to see the sun. And for a moment, you would think that it had disappeared from the sky. Some of us this morning are in seasons of life in which we feel as though God has disappeared from our lives. We're facing such enormous challenges. We face such enormous pressures. And in all of it, we wonder, where is God? Where is He? He's been diminished in our understanding. He's been diminished in our perspective. And we've lost the sense of His presence and the sense of His comfort. Moses had long been in a place like that. You're familiar with the story of Moses, I'm sure. He was in this place called Horeb because of a A bad decision that took place in chapter 2. God had providentially protected him and preserved his life. And he had been reared in the palace of Pharaoh. But because of a decision in which to take matters in his own hand, he suffered a broken world experience. What Gordon MacDonald calls a broken world experience in his book, Rebuilding Your Broken World. Many of us know about broken world experiences. We either are in one now, we've been in one, or we will face one. And Moses is in this place and has suffered great loss and great deprivation. And so I'm sure Moses wondered, where is God? And perhaps you're wondering that today for a variety of reasons. Well, I want you to notice that God had Moses exactly where he wanted him to be. Because it's in the broken places of our lives. It's in the broken seasons of our lives. that first of all, God reveals himself to us in fresh and profound ways. Notice in verse 1 that Moses was on the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's a dry and barren place. A desolate place. In fact, he, Horeb is a geographical area that designates a forsaken place. In the Hebrew, it means dry and barren and bleak. Not much life there. Not much company there. It was an isolated place. But that was the place that God met Moses and renewed his vision of himself. That was the place that God reminded Moses that he is present and that he's the great I am. It was that place that God pushed and pulled Moses to a fresh encounter with the living God. And in that place, he renewed his vision of himself. That seems to be the pattern over and over again in Scripture. Elijah was pushed to a wilderness place where God spoke to him and renewed his faith and renewed his hope and renewed his confidence. It was in a barren and bleak place that John the Baptist heard the call of God and answered that call and began to proclaim another, even the Lord Jesus. It was in a barren place that Jesus withstood the test, and became our hero, our champion, because he succeeded where Adam had failed. And Some of us today are in that barren and bleak place. We're there because of family challenges. We're there because of work layoffs, downsize situations. We're there because we've lost our equity, our capital, our investment. We're there because of either situations we've caused or others have crossed. And I want to renew your hope today. That it's in the place of barrenness. That God really gets our attention and reminds us of who he is. And enlarges our understanding and our vision of himself. In the place of disappointment and failure, even humiliation, God shows up in unexpected ways. Chapter 2 describes the murder of an Egyptian in which Pharaoh found out and Moses actually fled for his life. Moses, because of his impulsive decision, had traded the palace with its marbled columns and the company of princes and all kinds of extravagances in which he would have been bathed and barbered every day. There was a place of plenty. And now his company is the bleeding of sheep. And now instead of a palace, he's in a tent held up by a wooden stake. It couldn't have been more miserable, more, more dramatic change than leaving a place of plenty to a place of poverty. In fact, if you look at this closely enough, you'll find out that Moses is tending not his sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. The only thing worse than working for your father-in-law would be work, working for your mother-in-law. <laughs> I say that because I don't think my mother-in-law's here this morning. She usually shows up in the second service, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll say something different in the second service. Yes, that's right, I'm a coward. I wouldn't fight my mother-in-law with both hands tied behind her back. Um, now, where were we? <laughs> Moses um, had left Egypt at the apex of his career, if you will. He had been educated. He was draped with finery. And now he's wearing the attire of a shepherd. And his only company at night is the bleeding of sheep. And they're not even his sheep. They're his father-in-law's sheep. You know what that means? It means you have no equity. It belongs to somebody else. It means you have no capital. It's in others. It means there's no nest egg. Somebody else has that nest egg. It means, practically speaking, that you've lost everything and the only thing that remains is deeper grips than what might have been. And yet it's in that place that God begins to reveal Himself in fresh ways. And God begins to speak to Himself or begins to speak to Moses in profound ways. And God can meet you And he can meet me in our Horeb. And in that place, we're not alone. But God shows us himself in faith-renewing ways, in vision-enlarging ways, in confidence-renewing ways. And all of that happens in Horeb because God burns away our pride. He burns away our arrogance and our presumption. He burns away our self-reliance, our ego-driven lives in which we measure things by numbers and nickels. It's in Horeb that God reminds us who's in charge of our lives. It's in Horeb that God burns away carnal impulsivity in which we govern our lives instead of bowing before the true and the living God. Charles Colson was described as Nixon's hard man. He was the evil genius, one writer said, in an evil administration. But in June of 1974, Colson found himself in a federal prison. And on his way to prison, a friend gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And it was locked in a cell that this former Marine, this... Former hard-bitten, ego-driven, ambitious lawyer had an encounter with the living God that forever changed his life. And sometimes we go kicking and screaming to that place and I don't want to be there and you don't want to be there. But in that place, God does some of his most deep and profound work in our lives. And if we live long enough, we look back on those places and we praise him for him. For them, We look back on those places and we're grateful that God took us there. And though we went reluctantly and though we'd have rather avoided that season, God accomplished a far greater work of grace in our lives in those places. Because the places of brokenness in our lives serve His purposes. I graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary in May of 1996. I was... Uh, a two-seminary. Actually, I'm a three-seminary person. I attended Mid-America here in Memphis. I went to RTS in Jackson, Mississippi, and now I'm at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, That shows you I'm not very smart, I guess, in that I'm in my third pass through a seminary. But in February of 1996, Melinda and I went to the Presbyterian Church of America Assessment Center outside of Atlanta, Georgia. We flew into Georgia Um, In very cold weather, we caught the tram system there and headed toward Tucker, Georgia. And we're standing on the platform of this tram system in single-digit weather, freezing, cold. And we spent some of the toughest three or four days of our lives being grilled, interviewed, tested, assessed, role plays. We had psychological profiles in fact, by the end of the week, we were so paranoid that we would go into the bathroom in the room in which we stayed and turn on the water so that we could converse about the day. At the end of that grueling process, we had an exit interview in which we were told we passed their assessment to plant a church. We could plant a church in the Presbyterian Church of America. But the exit interview, one of the interviewers, there were two, said this. It was a rather strange thing. He said, the only thing that we we can see in your life is that you've never been broken. There's never been a place or a period in your life in which you've experienced brokenness. And I said, rather defensively, I've had a good life. And it's not as if I can put on the calendar that... Next week or next month, I think I will experience some brokenness. That's under God's hand. I went back in March. I flew back in March to meet with Mission North America to find out about where to plant and how to plant and so on. And so I went before that committee and they said, tell us about your burning zeal, your burning desire to plant a church. And I said, "I, I can't tell you eloquently about this burning passion to plant a church, but I can tell you that I want to do whatever the Lord leads me to do. They dismissed me and said, come back when you can tell us more definitively about your desire to plant a church. As I walked out of that room and headed across the lobby of the Ramada in Atlanta, Georgia, the same exit interviewer intersected me and said, I've been praying for you the past month. And I can't shake this idea of brokenness. That God uses people who are broken. That God uses people whom he's Humbled in, who, who, in whom he has deepened their trust. That was March of 1996. I saw that same man in Birmingham, Alabama in January of 2002. I saw him at a church conference and he was walking down the hall toward me and I stopped him. And I said, you may not remember. And he smiled and said, I do remember. I do remember you. And I said, I get it now. I get what you mean about being broken. And I began to weep in the hallway of Briarwood Presbyterian. And in that time period, in Melinda and I's lives, I didn't think we would make it through that period. There were sleepless nights, deep anxiety, knots in the stomach, worries and fears. But I can tell you today that I look back on that, and I'm grateful for God's severe providence. Because it was in Horeb that He renewed my trust, that He renewed my confidence, that He sharpened and clarified my call. It's not just that God is present, but look at what He shows Moses. He reveals in verses 4 through 6 His holiness. And he shows us his holiness in these broken seasons of life so that we might worship him. Holiness is the leading characteristic of God. It's the only attribute of God that's troubled. He's the... God who is holy, holy, holy. It's a superlative attribute of God. And what that means essentially is this. That God can be and is nothing less than morally perfect and upright. There's not a shadow on his character. He's impeccable in all that he is and in all that he does. And why is that important to us in these downturns? Because in the downturns we're tempted to become bitter... We're tempted to become cynical, we're tempted to blame ourselves and to blame others, and our worship is muted by doubt and unbelief. But if we believe and see that God is holy, then we believe that even in this broken place, God is doing what is right And just and good and appropriate. And even though we may not understand it, we can praise his character. And even though we may not understand it, we can praise his perfection. And even though we may not understand it, we can rejoice in his unfolding providence. Because we know that it is holy. Isaiah chapter 6. King Uzziah had died. He had reigned 52 years And Isaiah went into the temple of the Lord and in that place he saw this vision of God and he was high and holy and lifted up and seated on a throne. And he heard the seraphim praising him and saying, holy, holy, holy. Seven hundred years later, John on the Isle of Patmos in a time of great turmoil had a vision of God in heaven in Revelation 4 and he saw him as the Lord God Almighty who is holy, holy, holy. In those broken places of life, we need to be reminded that God is just as holy, just as right, just as perfect, just as good as He ever is, so that we might praise Him. Because if we're not sure that He's holy, we'll complain, we'll become bitter, we'll become cynical, our souls will shrivel, and our worship will be silent. But just as we sang this morning, That we can adore Him. What a Savior we can adore Him. Because He is holy. God reveals His faithfulness so that we might trust Him in those places of brokenness as well. Salon Magazine in July had this article entitled, "Obama, President Obama, A Trail of Broken Promises. Our president, of course, was not the only politician singled out in that article. ...for being notorious for breaking promises. We're almost accustomed to it, aren't we? I mean, you really can't believe all of those campaign promises any longer. There's a website dedicated to chronicling broken promises of national politicians. But not our God. He's absolutely faithful to all that He promises. And He never forgets a promise... What he says he will do, he most surely will do. And in those broken scenarios of our life, those promises must sink into our souls. Look at what God promises. Go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 6 for just a moment. Uh, follow with me as I read verses 6 through 9 very quickly. And God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he's afraid to look at God. And then in verse 7... God says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people here in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites." And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. This is, this uh, series of promises is not new. It goes all the way back to chapter 2, where God says that He remembers His promise to Abraham. And that's not new. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15, in which four generations earlier, God had promised Abraham, I will bring your offspring back to this place. And I will judge the nation in whose service they've been cruelly treated. And here's the fulfillment of those promises. All that I'm saying to you this morning is this. That in those broken places, God is present with us. That he reminds us of his holiness, lest we become embittered and cynical. He reminds us of his faithfulness. That all of his promises to us are true and yes and amen. And they've been sealed and secured to us by the blood of Jesus. And so we feed our souls upon those promises. In those midnight hours, when all seems lost, we hold uh, those promises before the living God in which he has said that I am with you and I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. And I will sustain you and I will meet your needs and I will be your God. We hold those promises up to him. And remind him of those promises because he's faithful to those promises. He says to Moses, even as he says to us. I have not forgotten you. And I have not forgotten my promises. And it's in that place that he reveals his sufficiency to us as well. And why is that? So that we might rely on him. Not only is he holy, so that we might worship him. Not only is he faithful, so that we might trust him. But he says to us, I am sufficient for your life. I'm sufficient for your marriage, your family, your children, your employment, your retirement, your health. I am sufficient for all of those needs and more. And he reveals his sufficiency so that we might turn to him in confident reliance. God called Moses to do the humanly impossible. I mean, here's this man, 40 years in a palace. 40 years in a barren place tending someone else's sheep no longer in the Egyptian finery the broad cloth of Egypt but now in the tattered garments of a shepherd an 80-year-old man DL Moody says that used to say that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody he spent the next 40 years of his life learning that in fact he really was a nobody and then the final 40 years of his life, God showed him what he could do through someone who was little in his own eyes. And so God shows his efficiency. In verse 10, he says, come, Moses, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out, out of Egypt. Verse 11, Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In verse 12, God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. And oh, the grace of this text in that God reveals his personal identity. He gives his covenantal name. In verses 13 and 14, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, you tell them, I am. I am that I am. In the Hebrew text, that's four consonants. It's called the tetragrammaton. They, that later the Jews would believe that it was an unspeakable, unmentionable name. And when it appeared in a text of Scripture, they wouldn't even read it. They would pass over it. They would pronounce it as Adonai instead of saying Yahweh. Or in some translations today, English translations, it appears as Jehovah. What is embedded in those four Hebrew consonants is everything. It's a reminder that God is eternal. That he was and is and is to come. And so we find the meaning of life in him. Embedded in those four consonants. Is God's sufficiency. That he is, is self-existing. Self-sustaining. And he brings us into fellowship with himself. So that we might know those realities. Guys we miss the mark when we define our lives by what we do by what we wear, by where we live, and by where we go. Life is defined and its meaning is defined by the God who says, I am. Because in that name is the essence of God's being, the essence of his power and capability. And the joy of this is not that you and I this morning have a shepherd staff and we're living in barren places. In fact, I... Got up this morning and fixed coffee in an automatic coffee maker and I showered with warm water, fortunately, and I had heat in the house and I had uh, oatmeal uh, fixed in the microwave and I'm warmly dressed this morning. No, it's not found in those circumstances that we find our connection with the text. What is our connection with this text is found in this. That he is the great I am. And what that name means to us is this. What I have been, I will always be. What I have been, I am to you and to your children. God's sufficiency, magnified in our seasons and places of loss and places of brokenness. He's still the same God. Still holy. Still faithful. Still plentiful and powerful and sufficient and God shows that to Moses and in us in unique ways we don't have time to really go into this but just very quickly in chapter 4 you know Moses is uh, engaged in a in a debate and a dialogue here, and I I would like to think that if you're speaking to a burning bush that's not consumed with fire, and that bush says, "Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground," and that bush says, "I'm going to send you to uh, Egypt, and I'm going to bring you into the land that I've promised," that you would say, "Okay," but Moses says. Um, how do I know that's going to happen? And so he's got his shepherd staff. And here's the three, three ways that God shows his sufficiency to Moses and to us. First of all, he says, you see that staff? Throw it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. He says, grab the serpent again and it goes back to a staff. You read that and you think, what's the significance of that? On Pharaoh's crown was an upright spitting cobra called a Eurasus. It was the symbol of his sovereignty and the symbol of his power. And in that little gesture, in this barren place, God says to Moses, I'm the one who exercises authority over every other authority. I'm the one who's in charge of government and places of power. I'm the one who's in charge of your job, your employment, your health. And if that's not enough, he says to Moses, put your hand in your cloak or your garment. And so Moses does and he comes, pulls it back out and it's leprous. Leprosy in the Old Testament was a dreaded disease. It was a principal way in which God humbled people. He struck Uzziah with leprosy to humble him. He struck Miriam with leprosy to humble her. And what God is saying in that sign, he says to us, I know how to humble you. My mom had the keenest way of Humbling me when I got too big for my britches. And God knows how to humble us when we become proud and presumptive. And in the third sign, the water becomes, the water of the Nile becomes blood. But the Nile was the source of life. It was the source of prosperity. It was the source of Egypt's success. And by turning it into blood, what God is saying is, I govern the flow of commerce. I govern the flow of your prosperity. I'm the source of of your success. And I can turn it off and I can turn it on. And so in this place of barrenness, we need to really, really be reminded that God is a holy God, that he is a faithful God, that he is a sufficient God, and that he is present with us. I'd like for you to think this morning that the most defining thing about you and the most defining thing in your life is your view of God. To see Him as He is in this text is to put a thousand temporal problems in their place. It's to put them in the, in the, in a, in the scale, if you will. Here's my life and here's my challenges and here's my circumstances. And here's the God who is holy and faithful and sufficient It gives clarity. It gives perspective. The God of all grace is present with us and our horeb, Whatever that may be, wherever that may be, he's there to burn away the pride, the self-reliance, the self-preoccupation. The holiness of God bolsters our assurance that he's going to do right and can do nothing less than right by us. And the faithfulness of God reminds us that He will be true and faithful to all the promises that He's made. And in those places, we're reminded that He is more adequate and more sufficient than we could ever begin to envision or imagine. Have you ever been in the classrooms in Amazing Graceland here? Stenciled over every over every uh, chalkboard or marker board is this, this phrase. God is the hero of every story. Moses is not the hero of this story. God is. And so I ask you a closing question this morning. Who's the hero of your story? Who's the hero of your life? To whom and on whom will you look and depend? Standing 132 feet tall... And 108 feet wide is this statue in Cocobamba, Bolivia, called Cristo Redentor. It means Christ the Redeemer. It's so tall that you can't miss it. It's so big that you can't miss it. And every direction that you look in Cocobamba, Bolivia, you see this towering statue. May we see God. No matter the direction we look this morning, may we see God as big and as powerful and as sufficient as he is indeed. God grant it that we may have renewed confidence in him this morning. Let's pray. Our fathers, we bow again in prayer before you this morning. We pray that you would indeed sharpen our vision, clarify our perspective. And for those of us who are in our own versions of Horeb this morning, would you speak to our hearts and assure us and comfort us that you're there, that you're present, that you will do and accomplish all that you intend in those seasons and that you will magnify yourself and restore our brokenness. A lingering truth of this text is that failure is not final, that loss is not final for the people of God. May we find joy and comfort in that this day. For Christ's sake, in whose name we pray, amen.